0: My name is Robert Schreiner and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show.
1: Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi.
0: Well, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and this is your backstage pass to the entertainment industry. This week, we get to talk with an author, a TV and a radio personality, and a comedian. We get to talk with Dick Wybrow. We'll talk to him about his time in radio, what it was like working for CNN, and we'll take a look at his latest book, Kane. Now, Dick is a Canadian, he's lived in the US, and he's currently living in New Zealand. He has had an amazing journey, he's written 15 books, and I can't wait to talk to him about it tonight. So if you would like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfrenzy.com. Now
2: let's get started. Dick, sir, how are you? Good, man. And that's the power of the Jay Frenzy Show, is time travel. Because not only (laughs) have you crossed the entire globe, you've gone into the future. Today is tomorrow.
0: Today is
2: tomorrow. You're yesterday, and I'm your tomorrow. And in this part of the world, we are sworn to secrecy. We're not allowed to say what happened to the <laughs> Not future.
0: allowed to tell me the lottery But I will numbers, say
2: so. everything is going to be fine, except for that one thing. Yeah. But everything else everything will be else fine. Everything else will be good. Oh, You'll okay. be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> that is
0: perfect. <laughs> well, sir, since you can't tell me the lottery numbers, let's just go ahead and move on to, to you. Right. Um, you have written 15 books. That's pretty impressive. So how long does it take you to come up with your unique voice?
2: Nobody's good at it when you start. So what a lot of people do is you sort of copy a style. So if you want to write a book and you've got a favorite author that you read a lot, most people copy their style for the first book. A good friend of mine, Brad Meltzer, he is a huge author and he he has a great line. He said, I don't even know if they're around anymore, but he said, my first couple of books were published by Kinko's. (laughs) <laughs> because the first couple of books you write, they're going to suck. And I was no different. My first books had been published by fire. It was terrible. It should have been set alight <laughs> you know, and, and a ritual and have people dance around it to, to make the spirits go away. It was terrible. So then you, you keep writing like anything else. And if you got a passion for it, you have to write. It's not like even you seek out your voice. You know, like any musician has a bit of a sound, you know, a David Gilmour track or whatever it might oh, be, right? Oh, yeah,
0: thanks But Lord. same
2: thing with an author. And I can tell if I'm reading an author when they collaborate with somebody, I can always tell when the guy that I like or the woman that I like, I, I can tell when their stuff is there because you can hear it. And supposedly I have that voice as well now. But it's, as you said, it's taken more than a dozen books to really hone that down. And, and it's not easy. Because there's definitely times where you start to store it, color outside the lines, but that's what creativity is. It's sort of just throwing everything there and you put a bunch of clay together. You just mop on all that clay and then all the stuff that kind of sucks, you just start carving that away. <laughs> and then eventually you got something that you can call a book.
0: That is funny. You, you mentioned something there that just reminded me. When I wrote my first book, my books are more technical. They are not like yours. They're not stories. They're how-to type books. But when I wrote the first one, I was teaching at an engineering college, and it's an engineering book. And my students said, we could just tell it's you talking. We can hear the things you would say in class and stuff. I thought that was cool. And then my latest book is a leadership book, and I wrote it with somebody. And now I have people telling me I can tell when it's you, and I can tell when it's her. You can tell the differences. I never really thought about it that much before, but I guess it's—I it, guess it's a thing.
2: In fact, it's actually <laughs> with my relationship with my lovely wife, the most important person in the world to me. She, <laughs> she's the one person who won't read my books. She doesn't read them, <laughs> and she'd like to, but she says the hard part is I read it and I can hear your voice, and apparently that's not a good thing. Or more specifically, it takes her out of the story because right. she can hear me saying it. And so it doesn't feel like Amelda or Kane speaking. It feels like Dick speaking. And she hears that all day long and she doesn't want to hear any more of that, understandably. And so <laughs> she actually doesn't read my books. Uh, she'll read a bit in peace. Like I'll say, here, is this any good? And she'll look through it and then give me her honest opinion, which... Don't give me an honest opinion. I'm a creative. Tell me right. I'm amazing. But no, <laughs> that's what I need, actually. You need to have that person in your life that can go, that's good. That's that's nuts. I don't know what this is. And you take that in. It's so important to have somebody because it's hard as a creative to put yourself out there and and like, here, world, this is me. Because writing and music and even the writing you do, yeah, it's nonfiction and it's emmanuels, But, man, that's out of your heart. And when somebody were to say something and take a shot at it, that's taking a shot at you. So even if they're, if they're critiquing your stuff, you know that 100% that they're on your side, that's a gift. And I'm lucky to have it.
0: I laugh because my wife, she won't even listen to my show. I mean, I have to, you know, it has to be something for me to get her to say, can you just please listen to this episode and tell me what you think or, or the book. When I was writing, my wife is a really good writer. And I said, can you just please take a look at this book and tell me what you think? She goes, "Nope, I'm going to read it right. when it's done. I said, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, babe, you read it when it's done. And then when it was done, she reads it and like within five minutes, she goes, oh, you should have said this differently. I'm like, you know what? You don't get a choice now. <laughs> if you read it before, I would have taken your you advice. You had your shot. Right.
2: You had your shot. Because you're going to write something else. If that critique is something you decide to take in, you kind of take a look and say, well, maybe it could kind of revoice something in a different way. So it's all valuable. You know, it's it's all worth listening to. You use some of it, you throw some of it, the rest of it out.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's the relationship I have with my wife. She's, I will never say it to her, but she, she's very smart and very good at this. And she's got a, a very good eye and ear for things. And, you know, half the time she's right. So
2: shh, I didn't say it. I tell my wife all the time that she's very smart. Because if I don't tell her she's very smart, if I don't explain to her she's very smart, she starts to get that self-doubt. It's like any of us. She's her own worst critic. And I got to remind her because, you know, we live in New Zealand. And Americans, even though I was born in Canada, coming into New Zealand, you would think that it's English. It's all English. Right. But it ain't all English. No. <laughs> there is a very <laughs> different way how Kiwis and Americans express themselves. And so when we speak, because we're real open and we'll talk about anything, we'll pontificate about stuff we don't even know anything about. (laughs) That's just our way. On a regular basis. That that screws up Kiwis and all that. (laughs) Yeah, man, we'll just go and we'll talk our heads off. And so it's great having her here because we're a great sounding board for each other. It's really helpful having a partner like this. I'm really, really lucky because otherwise it would be a sea of silence around me a lot of cases. Uh, and she's great. I'm really lucky to have it. Well,
0: since you brought it up, what's it like being an American living over there?
2: yeah, it's it's uh it's living over here is great. It's a beautiful country. Half of my family is from here. My father was a Kiwi, and so it was actually uh, eleven years ago or so. I was working as a senior producer at the time uh, because my progression, the natural progression from stand-up comedy to ready rock jock to and television producer. yeah, of course,
0: that's the way it usually not. goes. yeah
2: and normally. Yeah. it's the old path that old <laughs> that old chestnut yeah. but there was a point where i got i got a little bit exhausted by the cnn sort of experience because it was caustic a newsroom is uh, is an, is a vile place and i don't mean awful it's just the stuff that comes in most news that comes in is pretty dark <laughs> yeah. but also it starts to stain the people and so so, the environment, like you go into the control room, there's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of screaming back and forth. And I'm a Canadian and we don't do the screaming thing. So, oh, much. you guys are polite. And so, yeah, we're for the most part polite. We can be, you know, I can get the stuff done, but I just do it in a very Canadian way. And I had my bosses saying, We're well, not urgent enough. It's like, what well, that was code for is you're not yelling at people. Right. It's like, I don't know, all these people around here seem to be pretty happy <laughs> with my non urgency way of doing this. They right. seem to be really okay with it. And my shows get great ratings. So, I was in an environment. That wanted me to really put pressure on others and really squeeze on others. And I was getting kind of tired of it. And I was Googling around at one point, And I told my wife, I said, you know what? I just found out because my dad's a, a Kiwi. I found out that I have citizenship by descent. It means that I'm a New Zealand citizen right now. And she said to me, then what are we doing here? Let's go. That was October. It was October. We were in country by January. That was it. We sold our stuff. We gave our stuff away. And you know, she's so super organized. She was able to work all these bits and pieces out for us. We got onto a plane, and we headed here, and we established. I was in country here just south of Auckland, and I stayed with a cousin of mine for about two months and came up, up to Auckland, and and we've been here for 11 years.
0: See, I talk to my wife a lot about that. I would like to go to Australia. I just tell her, I just... We should just go and she's like we can't just go i'm like why not there <laughs> people do it yeah. i mean i don't know how to do it but people do it so i'm sure we could figure it out but no i would love to do that at some point
2: the biggest challenge with australia is it's got a lot of australians yeah yeah they are there. They, no, I actually love Australians. They're quite American in style, like Australians. But it's funny because you compare Australia to New Zealand, and Australia's got killer sharks. There's, I think there's a new killer squid. They've got poisonous spiders and snakes. They've probably got butterflies and crickets that would kill you or take your head right off. Right. There is yeah, of nothing course. like that in New Zealand. We're well, just across the Tasman be? here. I don't... We, we've got good biosecurity. I don't know what it is. Maybe they're just drawn to that i don't know it's, it's kind of arid and deserty maybe that's it there's nothing here that will kill you other than the healthcare system <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's nothing yeah and i'm joking but there's nothing here that'll kill you for the most part i remember when we first came here like 15 16 years ago i came with a television show and the guy was just walking through the bush as he called the forest and he was barefooted bare feet and i said Are you worried about getting his no there's nothing here that will hurt you and, and That's kind of the fun theme of the place, you know. There's a real laissez-faire sort of attitude about the place. Everybody kind of lets their thing, everybody does their thing. But, you know, when it comes to that translation, like I mentioned, from English to New Zealand English, you do have to learn how to speak their language. I don't know how many times I had talking to somebody, I get looks like this. And I don't know if they're staring at my lips trying to work out the words I'm saying right. or I've just just hit them with a millstorm of, of noise because they don't do that here. It's not really their style so much. Some do. We have outliers. But for the most part, you've got to learn how to speak in a language or at least in a temperament that they're going to hear you and that you allow yourself to hear them. And I guess that's the most important thing in life in general.
0: Well, are they welcoming
2: yeah, yeah, they're great. They're great. And, you know, there's, it's funny, we ended up going down to Dunedin, and that is at the bottom of South Island. And just give you an idea about how very different in style. So there's a castle there called Lanyard Castle, I believe it's called. And to get there, it's kind of windy sort of roads, and you get down into this castle. And it's an old castle. This is a country that's 150 years old, so it's not that old, but it's an old castle. But, <laughs> the curves around the side of this this mountainous sort of area, you can see down to your death at every turn. Had this been in the U.S., there would have been guardrails all around. mm not here. No, they're like, listen, you should know better. <laughs> that's the attitude. Listen, that's Darwinism. If, if you go over the edge, you really should have known better. And so there's a little bit of that. It, it's certainly not litigation-happy sort of scenario that we've got in the U.S., but it's a sort of place that you kind of left to your own. Like, you know, you'll work it out. There's avenues in that to make sure people get taken care of for the best they can. But for the most part, yeah. Yeah, for the most part, they let you do what you're going to do. And if you don't hurt anybody, you're probably fine.
0: I think it's funny. I, I just found out I was afraid of heights. I found out I was afraid of heights because a buddy of mine likes trail riding in his Jeep. Right. So my wife and I went with him and his wife, two separate Jeeps. But I was the one driving the one with him. And we were driving through Death Valley in California, and we came up to a mountain, lowered the pressure in the tires, and started going up the mountain. Dirt road, just wide enough for the Jeep. No guardrail, no trees, nothing. 7,500 feet up in the air, and I'm looking down, thinking to myself, oh my God, what am I doing? (laughs) It was the craziest thing ever. I I will never do it again. Have you always been afraid of heights? To an extent. At that point, I almost got out and walked. This was ridiculous.
2: It's funny you mentioned that because when I was younger, I wasn't afraid of heights. I was an idiot like most young men are. We're idiots. Yep. And, you know, and I I told this to my two sons, I had two boys, and I I sat them down one day when they were teenagers, and I said, boys, you're morons. You don't know it, but you're morons. (laughs) One day you will realize that. One day you will realize you're a moron, and that will be your first true day of wisdom. (laughs) And and both of them at some point in their mid 20s rang me up or sent me a note and said, Dad, I'm a moron. And I said, I couldn't be any more proud. (laughs) So we were living uh, we were living in Southern California and I got into uh, a motorcycle accident and I didn't think anything of it. You know, I, I broke the bottom of my leg. It's kind of a common sort of injury. I didn't think anything of it until about a year or two later. Before then I had always been somebody who just did Daredevil say i am Daredevil but I just I never really considered my own mortality right. and so you know run across roofs, fly far too fast you know this sort of thing So by this time we' were living in Atlanta Atlanta Georgia, and I was hanging up Christmas lights and as I'm hanging up the Christmas lights there's this rattling sound I'm like what in the world is that is somebody better cut that up that's annoying and I' go hang <laughs> it's just rattling again I'm like what and I realized, I swear on my, on my life, I, I was shaking. My body was shaking. I didn't even realize it. And why I mentioned the motorcycle accident? and apparently after you get an injury, your body goes, we don't like pain. Yeah. And apparently that can sort of engender a fear of heights. And so I hadn't even realized, I was not conscious of my fear, but subconsciously my body was like, forget this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was shaking. And I had to get down. And so then it started to seep in. But before then, before the motorcycle accident, I didn't have any fear of heights. Now I get up from the couch too fast. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I get a little bit woozy. So yeah, it's uh it's fascinating how that works, especially with a subconscious playing around with your head.
0: I don't know. I've I've been in a motorcycle accident, so maybe that's what triggered it. It was back when I was a youngin, sixteen years old. And I mean, it may have been okay. what triggered it, but I had another moment where I'm an audio engineer and I was doing sound for the local hockey team in Nashville, the Nashville Predators. And they took me on a tour of the arena and walked me across the catwalk. And I get about five oh. feet across and I'm looking down and I'm like, no, this is good. I'm done. And they're like, no, no, we got to go over here. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, nope, I'm good. But no, no, I'm definitely, definitely afraid of heights.
2: Yeah. No, it's, it's funny. but I, that, And I think that moves into the place of phobia. Cause I think fear is something you can tackle. And I think, there's a moment where that phobia—it's just all-encompassing, you know—and it's, I supposedly irrational. Except there's a reason why you have a fear of heights yeah, because it's fall, fall down, boom—that's boom. no good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the old line, right? I don't have a fear of heights; I have a fear, fear of landing. Of falling, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: or the landing. <laughs> it's <guess laughs> really not the falling, Bart. Yeah. So you mentioned a TV show bringing you to New Zealand. What was that TV show?
2: Uh, it was. Many years ago, some years ago, I just I'd sent in a pitch for not the television show I was working on. It was working at CNN at the time, and it was a Travel Channel show called "Trip of a Lifetime." They said we're going to do ten episodes. Tell us where you'd love to go, and I thought, oh, what the hell? And I sent it in. and I said, hey, listen, I'm actually part Maori and uh, Naitahu, and I'd love to go back to my homeland for the first time and show my daughter that experience. And they loved the idea. And they flew me down. They paid for everything. And we did sandboarding and we did whitewater rafting and bungee jumping. And we packed, we packed, I think, a whole year of activities into about eight days. And I slept probably three, four hours a night, but absolutely fell in love with the country. It was just so beautiful. And the people were so sweet.
0: That's funny. The country is very small. I mean, do you have any challenges with that? Do you travel outside of the country regularly?
2: We do a bit. It's funny, it's, it's a little bit like living, like you, you're in Cincinnati, you used to live in Boston. And so when you talk about, oh, I got to go here, it's 45 minutes away, whatever. Right. You know, I live in Atlanta, and, you know, I got to go somewhere, it's about 90 minutes. Well, whatever. Just put on a podcast or put on some music or something. In a country this size, I tell people I should take the motorcycle ride into work. So how far is that drive? 36 minutes? You do that every day? Yeah, both ways. (laughs) It's like, you go that far? It's like, it's just not that far. But when you have a country of this size, 36 minutes, you could probably go from one side to the other. But I also lived in Pensacola, I lived in a small town United States. So I do know about this idea that everywhere you know is within 10 minutes. But no, it's, it's neat. We got up to all the way to Cape Ranga at the very top of the country where they've got a cool lighthouse up there. And you can see where one sea meets the other sea. We've gone down to Milford Sound where James Cook came in for the first time uh, up, up through the strait over there. We did the Tongariro Crossing, which is like this this mountain. And you do this crossing and it takes like 12 or 15 hours to get across. And we did it uh, here a couple of, I was going to say winters, I still got to get my head around it, a couple of Decembers ago, which is summer here, but it's on top of the mountain, it's always winter. And so the the conditions were actually kind of tough when we went. And so they would take buses of people, and you check in with them, you go up on the trail, you go up the Devil's Staircase, and you cross across the top, And then around down the other side, there's this amazing, these craters, they're filled with like this green, I don't know what that is, like this mineral, it's beautiful, but it's a long walk. Because of the inclement weather, they were canceling a lot of people from going over. And my wife and I went up to the reception at the little motel we were staying at. And she said, oh, we're not actually doing a shuttle bus, but I think, one of the neighboring sort of motels is doing when i can call them up and so she gets on the phone and she says yeah we've got two here if you guys are going tomorrow um we've got two from here that'll go and then she looks at us then looks away and looks at us well they're they're young at heart <laughs> and so we knew what was being said right, about us of course. a couple of old folks I'm going to try this younger Real Crossing thing. And I tell you what, when you do that to an American, even though I'm Canadian and grew up in the United States, when you basically tell an American, oh, listen, it might be kind of hard, forget it. Right. So Stubborn I think there were 30 it. of us or 40 yeah. of us ended up going up that hill. There were three that made it, and we were two of them. Two of the, three. <laughs> the other was like this 80-year-old guy from the UK, because once we were told it might be too tough, forget it. We're going across the top. And it was exhausting. It would never end. And there was a point two coming over the top, man. The wind was whipping over. And like I said before, like when we were in Dunedin, no guardrails. There's nothing. There's no rope or nothing. Like if you get blown off the hill, they just go, well, we <laughs> mark the population, uh, uh, countered down negative one. Right. <laughs> you know, If you got lost, blown to the wind, you're just gone. <laughs> but we made it across. We made it across and all the way down. And one of the longest walks down a hill I have ever had in my entire life. And my legs hurt for two days, but we made it. It was great. It's, awesome. it's a beautiful country, and it's a fun country to be a part of. Very cool. Tell me,
0: what what was your life at CNN like?
2: There were times where it was fun and creative. The other times everything was sort of smashed around by the bureaucracy of broadcast television. because, And this was in the beginning days of things starting to change. When I first started to get to CNN, as I mentioned, it was a difficult time in the control room sometimes because they really wanted you to press into people. There were fun parts to it, too. Uh, One of the guys that I produced for was Don Levin. And Don, for as much as he can be whatever he is on air, he is a talented, talented dude. And so he'd be talking with somebody, and you could speak to Don while he was talking to somebody else. That's how that that's how some of these guys are. They're such pros that you could say, "Hey, Don, listen, we got to bail out of here in about five minutes." And all he would do is kind of put his finger to his ear, and nod, like, "Yeah, I've heard you," while he's speaking. Right. So that dude could split off his head, have a conversation, hear you, and respond at the same time. So all the credit to the abilities there. But like I said, in that particular room, in that control room, it was chaos. It, was, it looked like mission control. You've got 70 screens in front of you of all these feeds coming in from the Middle East and Australia and Hong Kong and all this. You've got people doing fonting, which is all the words at the bottom of the screen. You've got other producers. You've got remote producers. You've got – apparently, there were sound people over there. There are people doing – no one ever saw them. I don't even know if they existed. But <laughs> in that booth over there, the darkened room over there were sound people. We said, maybe where you keep sound people? I don't really know. Sound gen- engineers. Yeah. They we, were in we that like dark, dark room. <laughs> yeah. So I never saw them come out. But it's fascinating because – Uh, Talking about the world of television and like what you're doing right now. That's where the world is going. That's where everything's happening right now. Because the show that I just wrapped up here in New Zealand, uh, it was a news comedy show. It was a live show at seven o'clock at night here in New Zealand. Our ratings were basically at an all time high and they canceled the show because the paradigm has changed in television. For one, fewer and fewer people are watching television. But it's no longer about the ratings. It's about how you can take what you've done on television and put that online digitally and so tv is really in a bit of a swan song at the moment and uh, be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years but what you're doing now is uh, is the future of this and the present i think so you're ahead of the head of the curve brother
0: yeah see tell my wife
2: <laughs> so
0: when you're at cnn and you're producing things what's your actual day like
2: So it depends on the show. Like I did a a morning show in Hong Kong. And so that was, to tell you what, that was a half hour show, but it was two of us writing that show. And so you had to sort of read in. And then the executive producer at the time, I was a writer on that show. that sort of said, these are the sort of stories we're covering. And see, there's a rundown in iNews. And that's the program that runs everything. So here's the top story. So any hour even though people don't use television like this as much anymore, even then we were doing this, the biggest story of the day goes at the very top in this whole inverted pyramid thing, smaller stories, and revisit them through the hour if necessary. So it'd come in and you'd read in, it's called reading in. And so you'd read everything and then you'd write stories. I tell you what, it was a heck of an education to go from like I'd done you know, stand-up comedy and done radio, which was more free form like this, to be able to take a concept or a story and shrink that down to 45 seconds, 30 seconds. When I wrote for HLN, Headline News, back in the day, those stories were eight seconds, nine seconds, maybe, maybe a verbose 11 seconds on occasion. But you've got to take these massive stories and smash them down to eight, seven seconds. It was hard, obviously, but it was also a great training ground for writing. Because it's that thing of an economy of words. And so you learn how to take big concepts, you learn how to take big conflicts and smash them down into the most important words possible. And hopefully you got that right more often than not. And there was an element of creativity because it's still the big secret of news is it's not like milk or bread. It's still, I hate to say it, it's still entertainment. Right. You know, and so... You, you still had to be craven a way of presenting the idea to get as many people to watch for as long as possible. And the people that did that right got great ratings. And these days, that doesn't matter anymore.
0: When you're writing headlines like that, that's a perfect segue into the online world and trying to capture people's attention.
2: Although there is something about how online began to somewhat affect news in general because it became about clicks, of course, right? So then that's where you saw these headlines get kind of more salacious on occasion, because you knew if you wrote something about the Kardashians or something like that, that that was something going to get more clicks than the new health initiative. Right. And so the scary part of that is if you're sort of led by the nose towards the ones that are going to get the most interest, most clicks, then suddenly the smaller stories don't get the interest that you need to have. And so that's a bit of a dangerous paradigm. And I know people that really, really work hard and the folks here at the local news hub, they work really, really hard to make sure that the important stories get out there. I'm really proud of them for doing that sort of thing. But it's always gonna be the sort of lighter or more shocking sort of headline that gets the attention, gets the clicks. And I guess as long as you're getting those clicks, you can do the important stories too.
0: I can understand that. Um, When you're working like that, people shape the story, like you said, to get the attention. So do you find a lot of stories or especially headlines get exaggerated?
2: Yeah. yes, yeah, Especially when it comes on, on when, when we we're doing our television show, we did we did packages. Right. So we had a live hosts that would, would talk into these packages. So it's a recorded piece of news that my producers ended up putting together. And then we have had headlines in the show. And then when they ended up on the digital properties, they would find some small piece. Like if we had an interview with a guy named Jimmy Carr, who's a very popular comedian very and our good, prime huh? minister, it was like one of our first years we were here, they ended up being on the desk together. And I think Jimmy Carr, let, let's say, for example, he said, I can't believe the prime minister is here uh, hosting the show with me, whatever it might be. Then the headline gets pulled out and says, "Like Jimmy Carr can't believe Jacinda Ardern is here. And it's like, well, that's not exactly what he said. Do you know what I mean? And so it starts to skew that. And the issue what it comes down to sometimes is that people don't read beyond the headlines. And after a while, people started think, oh, you know, Jimmy Carr, he doesn't like Jacinta and He's like, that's not, right. that's not what he said at all, actually. And so it's, it's dangerous. It'll be interesting, like I said, it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. But for as much as we scroll through and sort of begin to infer what these headlines start to mean, knowing that, or maybe not knowing, these headlines are written in a way to catch your attention, it can tweak what these stories actually mean. And you see that quite a bit. And so it, it's a bit of a dangerous prospect. Like anything else, I have faith in us and, and people, and I think at some point we'll work it out. For the most part, we're kind of bright.
0: Well, if you're writing for headline news or CNN, and you know, especially CNN being a large political news organization, do you feel like the stuff that you write, you're trying to either craft a story or a headline to fit a narrative, or do you feel like you're writing just for the story itself?
2: That is something that people brought up in and it would have been some 10, 11 years since I worked at CNN, but I can even tell you from my experience there or from my experience at this last show I was at, we never, I can't even think of one single time I had anybody above our show team that ever said, you have to cover this story. If it's a big story, we're going to cover it. You know, if it's COVID, of course we're going to cover it, but there was never any directive from on high and I swear in my life, there was never any director from on high saying, you must do this. You must have this angle, whatever it might be. There was never anything like that. In part, if nothing else, because if you got it wrong, then they could go. That was them, not me. So right. fire them, not me. <laughs> you know, then Maybe there's a bit of a hands off because of that. I don't know. But for the most part, yeah, it was you're sort of free to do what you want to do, you know, within the the sort of the governor set up by the executive producer of the show. But yeah, it was just trying to tell stories in the most interesting way, the stories that seem to resonate with people. And usually those were the smaller stories I always felt, the ones about people trying to make, make things work, either they're struggling or helping other people that are struggling, whatever it might be, or people that are trying to, to do something to make the world just just a quarter inch better. You know, if you get enough of those people together, things do get better. And so we try to highlight some of those stories wherever we could.
0: And the things that people can relate to. Yeah. So, no, I like yeah, absolutely. that. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned in there, too, that you've done stand-up and you were in the world of stand-up for a while. How does that affect your writing of your books?
2: Yeah. Yeah, they're, I would say they're intended to be humorous, but not written to be funny, if that makes sense. So the story and the characters matter more than me doing a joke. Right. So if I'm writing something in one of my books, in one of the Kane books, if I'm writing something, I think this is a great joke, where can I fit it in? I don't look at it that way. But if I'm creating characters and scenarios, a conversation between two characters that I think I've got a funny moment there. Yeah, I'll embrace that and take it in. So, yeah, it's not written to be a comedy book, but it's it's a thriller or a supernatural thriller that's humorous because anything I'm going to write to some extent is going to be funny. Because, as you mentioned, coming from that stand up comedy background and learning about stand up comedy and being a huge fan and student of stand up comedy for all those years, it did affect a lot of the stuff that I created. And there is some element of that even in writing news stories. You know, it's not necessarily doing comedy jokes, but it's finding moments, real human moments that are humorous and they don't have to be fall down funny. And a lot of times it's between two people a couple that is trying everything they can to maybe the, they've started a small business together and, uh, you know, they're out there and they're selling something on, on the side of the road or wherever it might be. And the only customer that comes on by is like a neighbor. and Even they won't buy and they laugh it off. You know, <laughs> you, 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 keep that moment in, especially if you can show that something grows a little bit later on. And that's a funny moment. It's not comedy, but it's kind of a funny moment that they see a bit of humor in that sort of adversity. And so you find opportunities to embrace Especially within relationships, embrace the humor and you highlight that. And that's what I try to do with the book. What people seem to like about it is is this relationship between the two main characters, Kane and Amelda, and especially from Kane's point of view and how he sees human human beings. People seem to like it.
0: Absolutely. Kane's
2: audiobook comes out January sixteenth. That's very exciting. Man, I am I am sincerely, I am sincerely just jazzed about this because I wrote three of these books back when I was doing 60 hours a week doing a television show. And so how do you write three books in a year while doing 60 hours already? He's like, well, one thing, I've got narcolepsy and insomnia back to back. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm up at 3:34 o'clock in the morning and I'm up anyways. Might as well write a book series, right? So here I am in this space portion of my garage in new zealand they carpet their garages people don't pull their cars in the garages they carpet them so it becomes a separate room so this here i'm in my garage and my wife helped put this together for me so i'm in one quarter of my garage the rest of this house is all hurts <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. all this is hers out there this is my space so in this quarter space of this garage at four o'clock in the morning in Auckland, new zealand I wrote something that these two L.A. actors are going to breathe life into. Now, the book as it is, people seem to really enjoy and they like the reading. But you're a little bit like me, as busy as we are. I do more audio books than I do actual book books. I just don't have the time to be able to do book books. I can't wait, man. I honestly can't wait. It's on pre-order right now on Amazon, which is on, you know, it's Audible, but these guys from Podium Audio, so I put the book out and hit some bestseller lists, and Podium Audio contacted me and said, "We want to turn this these three books into to an audiobook." And so so it's so thrilling. It's it's uh, Tim and Maria. And so Maria is Imelda, the main character who takes us to the story. And then Tim Campbell, he's the voice of Kane, the six foot seven French Canadian who used to be a wolf. <laughs> and so to hear them, their interpretation of the story and to hear them bring these characters to life, I, I call it like a blockbuster movie for the mind it's going to be so neat I can't wait to hear what they do with it (laughs) I know what it came up in my head and to hear their interpretations of the characters and hear them emoting into these characters and Melda barking at Kane or or Kane taking somebody on Ah, it's going to be so thrilling man as it is now I'm just jazz I'm tingling thinking about it it's going to be really really cool
0: well I can't wait I I can't wait for the audiobook because like you said I I cruise through audiobooks like nobody's business i just keep yeah. them just one after another after another
2: and it's it'll be fascinating so <laughs> both of the narrators i've reached out to them and, and spoke with them afterwards uh they're still actually doing one of the books now but they've both just sort of <laughs> got a real kick out of doing it because it's a gonzo kind of story i mean the idea of kane <laughs> so like I said, Tim is the voice of Cain. So uh, luckily for me, Podium has actually put two narrators on this. It's kind of rare, actually. Most audiobooks, as you would know, it's one narrator. So most of it's from Imelda's point of view, and she's sort of this part-time criminal that joins up with Cain. And Kane was a wolf running through the woods until this infected man bit him, and the next day Kane wakes up, and he's a teenage human boy. And then over the next year... He's taken in by this French Canadian couple who raised him over a year and he grows 10 years over that year. And now he's a six foot seven French Canadian. And so what he's trying to do, he goes and seeks out to find out more about this guy that bit him, who infected him with whatever it was that turned him into a human. And the one thing he can't do is drive because where he's learned French and learned English and and learned some of the bits and pieces about how to interact with humans, he doesn't have the motor skills. And that's where Melda comes in because she's a part-time criminal, may have done some getaway driving, and so Mm -hmm. she's the perfect person. She's looking for a way to get out of the criminal underworld, so she takes his job as his driver. And so they partner up to try and find out this secret, to find out what turned him into a human, because he wants to become a wolf again. He wants to be able to be a wolf and run naked and free through the Canadian wilderness, which he could do as a human, but he'd probably get incarcerated and would probably get frostbite. Very unfortunate frostbite uh, so yeah this is a story about these two seeking this out and it's for me it's, it's fun to be able to create characters like this because I wouldn't quite say marginalized but here's somebody who's a criminal outside of you know norms here's somebody who's way outside the norms who is this former wolf now this massive human being. And they come together and as they partner together, they kind of become more than the whole, right? And so they make an amazing team, the two of them. And it's not a romance story. They're just friends. But it's it's fun to watch them. They're pack of two work all this out and they got to take on a shadowy organization. They got to take on monsters because this other guy bit other people and it's turned them into these crazy monsters. And so it's fun. It's a real gas. And I had a real fun time writing it. I, for anybody who reads it, it seems like they seem to enjoy it. So if your viewers are interested in, in reading it, read it. But like I said, January 16th, the audiobook comes out uh, and it's worth, I know it's going to be worth a listen.
0: No, I can't wait for that. I, I find it funny that you mentioned it's a pack of two. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about the the book is you mentioned Canada, a um, farm in Minnesota. And these seems to be places that you've lived. Are you writing based on places you've lived?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, there's a line you could use sometimes. You sort of plagiarize life. Whereas, you know, there's no such thing as writing what you know because I'm not a six-foot-seven French Canadian who used to be a wolf. But, but I, there are places I'm familiar with. So I grew up in Minneapolis for the most part. I have been to Kitimat, where the second book takes place. The third book takes place in Atlanta. I have another series. A lot of that takes place in Atlanta. So especially for one, you sort of know the feel, because every town's got a bit of a different feel. You grew up in Boston, or you were living in Boston, now in Cincinnati. There's a different flavor to every town. There's a different flavor to Minneapolis compared to Winnipeg as compared to Kitimat, as compared to Atlanta. And if you do it right, and hopefully I try to do it right, that location becomes a character in the story in some way. There's a vibe to the place. Like for as much as Minneapolis sounds a little bit sort of light and fluffy, if you've ever been to Minneapolis, there are parts of Minneapolis that are tough, man. I lived in Dallas. I walked through Watts, walked through Watts, and I would be more freaked out in North Minneapolis at night than in when I was in Watts. It could do some rough parts of town.
0: Let's talk about your time in stand-up. Sure. What was that like?
2: It was great. It was, it was, <laughs> I never got into stand-up comedy because I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Even though I loved listening to stand-up and I listened to a lot of stand-up. I, mean, I was such a dork because all my friends, we listened to hard rock and we listened to heavy metal, all that stuff. And we had this back when there were tapes. And so what they would listen to on their tapes is compared to what I would listen to. They say, Oh, what do you got? And you're uh, nothing. Because not, I had George Carlin and Bill Cosby and right. Eddie Murphy. I had all these humor tapes because that's the stuff that I love listening to. <laughs> and I don't want them to know any of that because you know I had I had the Van Halen t-shirt with, with the sleeves torn off, and I'm listening to George Carlin. I, they don't need to know I'm listening to, you know, they need to think I'm listening to some heavy metal. So I started writing and that's really where that all got inspired. It's always been writing from the start. I started writing and this is back when this is obviously pre-internet. <laughs> Some people take a look at my age. there's probably pre-electricity, right? No, no, not quite that far. But, <laughs> but so we used to have what we call SASE, self-addressed stamped envelopes. So if I want to write a short story and send it off to amazing stories or something, you would include an SASE, and so they could reject you and you pay for the stamp. That's what that was all about. And so after I got a couple of those back, I was like, you get kind of disheartened. So I came up with this idea. The thought was, if I wrote something and got on stage, and this was the mindset of me at 19. If I wrote something and got on stage, I'm published. I'm instantly published. So <laughs> so that was my how i got to stand-up comedy because i could write something in the afternoon go up on stage and if it worked i'd keep it but that was me getting published and so i ended end up doing stand-up comedy for about three four years until i got into radio but that's what got me into doing stand-up and the very first time i remember the very first time doing stand-up it was at this dive bar in minneapolis called the valley i think it was in dinky town by the university and it was an open mic night And it would be like comedians slash singers and there were no comedians Uh, all they had was slash singers this is all they had (laughs) and so when i come up they're like oh we've got a comedian tonight and they gotta like lift the microphone up right right, as i get up there and so here i gotta sit down and they can move the stool out of the way where the hippie singers were wipe off all the tears from their sad songs move that over there and i had to do stand-up and i did five minutes of material and if you want to talk about, about a time warp, do five minutes in front of people staring at you, not laughing. That's not five minutes. Right. <laughs> that's five That's hours. five years of your life. Right. It never ends. But there was, there was one spot where they laughed. There was one joke they liked. And so I came away from that and I said, okay, it's like anything in life, right? I said, I'm going to keep that part that works and get rid of the other four minutes and 40 seconds. And so I got 20 seconds of a set. And so slowly I worked at a club called Stevie Rays in Uptown. And so I built up the three minutes and then five minutes, then ten minutes, and fifteen, then twenty, then thirty. And eventually you're doing middlings and you're doing some headlining every now and then. And that's how I ended up doing stand up. And it's and it's a hell of a feeling, you know, with a crowd, because they're on your side. And I think a lot of people think that you've got to win over the crowd. You've already won over the crowd for the most part. Unless you do something wrong. They right. came in, they paid their twenty bucks and their two they absolutely want you to succeed, and they hate the heckler. So they want you because they paid good money. They want you to make them laugh, and so they're on your side. And as long as you get that in your head, that can help a bit in doing a bit of doing time. And it was a great feeling. It was a lot of fun to do, and it taught me a lot. As we were saying earlier, about the construct of creating humor and and the value of language and cadence, and finding those moments and shining them up until they're into gold. Right.
0: Man, I I love stand-up, and I I love doing stand-up, but I don't think the average person understands that a two-minute set feels like a lifetime when you're standing up there. It's tough.
2: It's not easy at all. Two minutes when you're short on laughs can feel like a lifetime, and 45 minutes can feel like two minutes when it's really going well. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling, and really what a lot of it is, it's just, if I'm honest about it, it's laugh, but it's love, you know? I mean... You're making them a bit happy and they're flowing that happy back to you. And, and some of the greatest comedians, uh, I'll be honest, are people that are kind of messed up because they need that love so much. And so they're driven. They're driven. They're driven to get that back. And it makes them great comedians. Their private lives are all messed up, but it makes them amazing right. comedians because they need that in return. And that's what makes them great.
0: I appreciate when somebody puts the time into creating, whether it's 2, 5, 10, 20 minutes, whatever you're yep. going to do. I appreciate when people come And that's the sort of thing.
2: That. And you had other people with you. You know, There was a great, nice little community of, of comedians that were around you. And we used to call it tagging. So somebody, if you were doing, like, say, three or five minutes after a while, some of the guys said, hey, listen, I thought about this joke. You could tag it on to the end of that. And that was really great to have that kind of support. The Minneapolis comedy scene in the early nineties, mid nineties was one of the most beautiful places that i ever been. It was just creatives. Nobody had a dime. We're drinking, um, wine and Sprite, uh, because that's <laughs> what's that's all we can afford. Right. But it was an amazing time. The poor
0: man's champagne. I love it.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Tell me about your time in radio.
2: Radio. I think is, it's still one of my favorite mediums in the world. And, and podcasting is like that. Yeah. When I got into radio, I had come from the stand-up comedy world. So I did like <laughs> I did a morning show by myself. My very first gig was at KESM in El Dorado Springs, Missouri. It was a country station. That this place was so small, I literally had to come in in the morning and turn the radio station on. (laughs) I had to flip the giant switch. Right. And then there was a tower right outside the back window. That's where the tower for the radio station was. I think it was 1200 watts, (laughs) which probably gave me hair cancer or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, But it was pretty neat. Just sort of same thing, learning, learning that. And so I moved from there to next place, next place. I ended up doing a night show in Orlando called Dick at Night of course, and it became pretty popular. And so I ended up doing mornings okay, hold, in a, hold, a bit of a smaller on. market.
0: Hold on. Dick at night, what year was that?
2: Dick at night would have been 98?
0: I kid you not. I, I lived in Orlando during that time, and I think I remember the show.
2: <laughs> really? Really? Yeah. I apologize well. for that, sir. It, it was... Uh, yeah, it ended up getting uh, it ended up getting known pretty well, and so I, I was able to parlay that and to do mornings, and so I ended up going to and do a partner show, and that was a great sort of learning experience as a creative because now I had to share the moment with somebody else. It was good to be able to bounce off of somebody but it was also learning that it was okay for them to be funny too. Right. And that took a bit of help from a talent coach of mine named Tommy Kramer. I was used to the stand-up comedy world or improv world where he would say something and I would say something to top it and he might say something I got to say something to top it. And Tommy once said to me says you can just let him be funny. Yep. That's fine. And I was like, "Yeah, but I get you'll have other opportunities. You have a 4-hour show." Right. <laughs> you can get your joke in later or tomorrow. Or the next week or next month. He said, it's okay. If he, and I wasn't bothered that he was funny. I just had an opportunity that I could add something to it. But sometimes you just let that joke work. And that's something I've moved into my writing too. Don't, don't beat a joke to death. Do the joke and move on. And that's where sometimes some humor, especially in books, I find, when some people write humor, where it falls down is because they just really drive it in. There's nothing worse for me than reading a line by an author and all the characters die laughing. It's like, I wasn't laughing. It's like, you know, just let it go. Put the line out there and move on. Don't do it. So for me, back to the radio side, that was a great education in learning how to sort of share that stage and also really appreciate and lift that other person up because that is one of the cool things that you can do on radio or in life, whatever it might be, is helping lift somebody up. And that's that's a great feeling. Once you get past your own ego and lift somebody up, that's an amazing feeling to have.
0: That's the key
2: right there is the ego. Yeah, exactly. It, but you get paid though, right? Because if you end up lifting them up, everything lifts up. All boats rise. And our show in Pensacola on TK101, we had that station been around for 25 30 years and we had the best morning numbers it had in the history of the radio station. Well, that wouldn't have happened if I was like me 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 the whole time and try and take all the jokes or try and top everything. Right. It was about You know, constructing something that people really loved and people really liked and lifting up my partner at the time. And when he was funny, making sure that I acknowledged that and laughed at the joke and didn't try and top it each time, move on to something else. So it pays off because I tell you what, that's pretty good for ego. Having the the top ratings in 25 years of a heritage rock radio station is not so bad.
0: Well, I think that's self-awareness and I think it comes with experience and age and it comes in time. You learn to step aside and let somebody else get the laugh. I've done several shows now with other people, and you really do have to step aside and let somebody else take the moment to shine for a minute.
2: Tommy used to say that people find the product funny. They want to tell you that's funny or that's funny. That's funny. You'll say that's a really funny show. That's something I try to remember.
0: Yeah, typically it's I like the show. I like the way the show makes me feel. Yep. All right, sir. Well, we do this thing here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody who works behind the scenes or somebody who may have supported you in your career and your travels. Do you have somebody you'd like to shine a little light on?
2: Well, be my wife, of course. She has been with me through the entire time, you know, and she's not somebody who just, you know, inflates my ego. She's not somebody who just says everything I'm doing is great, because not everything I'm doing is great. But she is the opinion I care about the most hers and really hers only because luckily for me, from doing standup comedy to doing radio, I got some pretty thick skin. I had death threats when I was on radio. It just oh, goes with the territory. There's nothing you can say about anything I'm doing that's going to dent me. But all she's got to say is look at me and go like, I don't like that shirt. And that shirt comes off, you know, <laughs> because her opinion matters to me. But I know that whatever she's saying, it comes from a place of love and support. And so if I'm into something, she can tell if, 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 if Like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, she doesn't read any of my stuff because she doesn't want to necessarily hear my voice in her head the entire time. But if I tell her about, about a story idea, she'll support me with it. She'll say, oh, that sounds a bit confusing. You ever thought about this? And she knows I might take it sometimes and other times I might not. But she's always got my back. And I tell you what, if you know, if, if this were a world and this was post-apoc and there were zombies outside right now and coming at us through the windows, there's nobody else I'd want in the house with me other than her. If nothing else, we can laugh our asses off as we get eaten. (laughs) Because we have a lot of fun together.
0: A big thanks to Dick for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you could, please follow, share, and connect on all the socials. I really do love hearing from you. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfrenzy.com slash episode 43. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you next week.
1: Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at JFranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, Reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.